It is another blessed occasion we've been afforded to gather this evening to do so under the banner of our service to the God of heaven, to appreciate the great number of blessings in a physical way we've all enjoyed this day, but certainly tonight to enjoy another spiritual one as we come together to encourage each other, as well as to offer our worship unto the God who loved us and sent His Son to die on our behalf. It is the case that, as you can already tell on the wall, we'll be reflecting upon one of the parables our Lord taught from Matthew 25. I might encourage you to be turning to that chapter. We'll be beginning in verse number 1 in just a few minutes and think somewhat about the famous parable of the ten virgins. As we do that, no doubt there are certain aspects of that very familiar already. And I trust that many of the things that we share will at least be reflective of what we've known in times gone by. But I suspect there's some other interesting features of it that we would do well to, in fact, have revisited in our hearing. And we'll try to do that this very evening. The delightfulness connected to our assemblies reminds each of us that one of the techniques, one of the strategies that God has utilized in terms of His teaching is to instill parables in the Bible. There are a few parables in the Old Testament, admittedly not a large number, but we each remember that it was one of our Lord's favorite teaching tools to teach by way of a parable. Depending on exactly how it's counted, there are certainly somewhat over 30 and perhaps a few more than that, again, depending on the way in which one might note it. But as far as an easy and simple to remember definition, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. In other words, it sets before one and all that which is quite familiar in one sense, but yet lurking beneath it, and often by far the most significant part of it, are these great eternal heavenly truths. And that will be no different as it relates to the parable of the ten virgins. As we transition over the next slide, may I invite each of us to do the following, in which we first reflect upon the parable itself. And after that, to extract a few lessons, a few observations that might be of great benefit to us. Allow me to start reading in verse number 1, and we'll read the first 13 verses of Matthew 25. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. And the foolish said unto the wise, I'm sorry, but the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell, and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. And that reading of Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13, now allows us, perhaps with a bit of interest, to step our way through that parable, not only attempting to highlight the earthly story, 
but also with a goal toward emphasizing the heavenly meaning as well. And so on that slide, I've invited you to note somewhat of the earthly story. You know, marriages today are things that you and I appreciate rather well. We've attended many of them, no doubt. We are aware of the general pattern of that which takes place. May I say that in the ancient day of the Middle East, about 2,000 years ago, there were a few particulars that were rather different compared to the way that a marriage usually developed in contrast to the way it's often done today. Now, there might be many things of note, but I'll just attempt to invite you to consider some of that which has a bearing directly on this parable. And so beginning at the top of that slide, you and I remember that it was fairly common for betrothal to take place then. So a young man and a young woman, and quite often it was arranged by the parents, they would select the mate for that young fella, as well as for that young lady. But otherwise, there would be a recognized time of betrothal in which they were regarded as connected to one another in that regard. Although they had not yet formally come to live together, they didn't in fact have arrived at the point wherein that was yet to be the matter at hand. But they were regarded as one for the other, betrothed. That was the case of Joseph and Mary, of course. But you'll notice on this slide, there would come a time when, of course, the marriage was to be finalized. Things would be drawn to a completeness and they would finally be living together and in one household. Somewhat early on that slide, then you'll notice that when that particular moment would come, it was a time of great celebration, a time of great festivity, a time wherein it was a rather momentous event for the groom, for his family, for the woman, of course, and for many others who would be called to celebrate it with them. And so early on that slide, you'll notice that moment would come when the groom, accompanied by his friends and usually with music, he would make his way to the bride's father's house. And at that point, as you can see, he would thus convey her to the time wherein these festivities, this marriage feast would take place. And of course, that very night, they would begin to live together. Somewhat amazingly, and interestingly, the mirth, the gladness, the joy, the celebration, you might recall that the Lord's first miracle took place at a marriage feast in Cana of Galilee. Marriage feast, a time of joy celebration, a time of great mirth for again the husband or for the bride and as well as the bridegroom, as well as many others who were a part of that community that were going to enjoy the festivities as well. Somewhat amazingly, they would often line the pathway or at least there would be folks available along that pathway who would join in that celebration with the groom as he was going to the place that he would acquire or get his bride. Well, that somewhat begins us to notice it was virgins on this case, ten of them. And five of them were said to be foolish, and five of them were said to be wise. One last set of observations on that slide. It was not uncommon for the particular journey of that bridegroom to take place in the evening. And therefore, there would need to be lamps or torches or something that would light the way and in fact add to the brightness, if you please, of this particular event. Now, upon arriving, the, broom, the groom, of course, would find his bride purposefully adorned, beautifully so, 
ready for the events of that evening. For you see, the time of celebration was at hand. She was now to be with her betrothed. Somewhat interestingly, as we transition to the next slide, you'll notice that he would now escort her to that place wherein the feast would occur. And it would be this particular marriage supper that would usually be at his house or the house of his father. That marriage feast quite often would last for a somewhat interesting amount of time, perhaps several days, maybe even a week. Now today, again, our marriages tend to be a bit different than that. There is usually a reception after the ceremony, but it doesn't last a week. In fact, it doesn't even last a whole day. It's just a couple of hours usually, isn't it? But you may well give appreciation to some of the connections to this parable. Jesus began in verse number 1 with this observation, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins. We might pause long enough to observe that the Lord likened the kingdom of heaven to the ten virgins. He didn't particularly liken them to the bridegroom, nor to the bride, but it was to the ten virgins. Now in the Lord's mastery and in the parable, He thus developed it in exactly that way. You and I can again picture the earthly scene. There were ten virgins who were a part of this party who were there to celebrate with the bridegroom as he went to get his bride and to lead her, of course, into the place of the marriage feast. But again, amazingly and interestingly, five of them were wise, but the other five were not. We are immediately told what it is that made them foolish. On the slide, I've pointed it out this way. The time when the bridegroom would make that journey was not the same as today. Haven't you and I often been impressed with the fact that there's a time today set for the marriage? So the bride and the, and the groom, they have made their plans. We're going to be married at 4 p.m. on Saturday. And all who would wish to attend are expected to be there by that hour. But back at that time, it wasn't that way. The groom didn't let the others know exactly what time he may arrive to, to select or pick up the bride. She just had to be ready and waiting. And of course, all that would wish to go in needed to be prepared as well. In this instance, five of these virgins were rather wise. They brought with them lamp and their oil. But they also, of course, brought some additional oil as well so that Based on the timing of the bridegroom, there would be plenty of oil available to last until that time and on into the activities of the evening. But five of the virgins were foolish. They had brought enough oil for a little while. They had brought some oil for a protracted period, but there was not enough to last if the groom were to delay his coming. Sadly, as they slumbered and slept, the news arrived that the bridegroom was on his way and it was time to arise, trim the lamps so that one would be ready to go into the festivities. The five foolish virgins soon discovered, and may I point out the interesting feature of the verb tense. If you'll notice with me, particularly in verse 8, it reads, Give us of your oil, they said, for our lamps are going out. The King James reads it, are gone out, as if perhaps they had already gone out and they were no longer burning. The actual verb tense is, present tense action, they are going out. 
Isn't it a bit ironic that maybe they had arisen and they were looking at the lamps and as they were in fact observing them, they were proceeding to go out. But you see, they didn't have any additional oil to allow them to burn longer. And so it was that they asked the wise, Give us of your oil. But the wise readily understood that if they did that, they then would no longer have enough oil for themselves to last during the duration of the night's activities. And so it was that they encouraged them to go out and buy for themselves. But of course, when they did, they returned somewhat later, and again, verses 10 and 11 now point this out to us. Afterward came also the other virgins. So they had now acquired some additional oil, but now the tragedy that is the situation is this. The others had gone in, and the door was now shut. The door was now shut, and they hear these words, if you please, from the other side. Verily I say unto you, I know you not. I don't know you. So these five virgins had lasted for a while. They perhaps had been a part of the waiting for some period. But now upon the fact that they were unprepared, the entire party had gone into the activities and the door was now shut. And as they themselves made the cry, Lord, Lord, open to us they hear these fateful words. I don't know you. I know you not. In the midst of all of that, we can likely easily imagine it. And at that point, the Lord closes that parable with this admonition in verse number 13. Watch therefore. The statement of learning for them as well as for us, watch therefore. For ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. As you and I reflect upon the parable, having set before ourselves the scene of it in the earthly story, what about the heavenly meaning? What lessons might there be in it that you and I would be able to use to assist ourselves? That slide before you now closes by continuing that rehearsal of some of the features of the parable but the last phrase on the slide is this one, the lesson that the Lord intended to teach. The one that began it and the well as, as well as the one that ended it has to do with watchfulness. Why don't we then give consideration to that idea ourselves in the light of the next observation, which will in fact be this one. This next slide invites you to consider it as follows. First, what about to Christians? Words of wisdom, words of warning, Words of great vigilance indeed. Could I invite you to note one interesting thought? And as I reflected upon this parable, I must confess that I found myself interestingly observant of this, and maybe you find yourself in this position. The central characters in the parable are the virgins. The bride isn't mentioned at all. Not one time is the bride mentioned, not even once. Now, we do have mention of the groom, admittedly, but only as an incidental fact that he was coming and the virgins needed to arise and get ready for his arrival. That's the only main thrust, apparently, of the appearance of the groom in the parable. It's the virgins. It's they who are apparently the central figures in what the Lord desired to teach. You and I recognize some interesting thoughts about that to you and me. 
First of all, would you observe what I've invited you to state? You and I know that Jesus is the bridegroom. More than once in the New Testament, the church is highlighted as His bride. The church is the one that is to understand her place. But as you and I give thought to the virgins, those who celebrate the coming of the Master, you and I notice that too would include those that would be desirous of being seen faithful by Him. Surely that includes all of us. Look back to verse number 1. Jesus in speaking said, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened. You and I know the church is the kingdom. The church of our Lord is the kingdom, and yet here it says the Lord likened it to these ten virgins. So you and I quickly know the Lord is not teaching about those out in the world here. He's teaching about you and me. Does that not remind us rather directly and powerfully that some, even in the church, may well be wise, and for that we're thankful, but some may well be the foolish ones? And how tragic is that? Didn't that remind us then that we surely would wish to be reckoned amongst the wise? We would not wish to be likened unto the foolish ones. We might now invite ourselves to ask more carefully, so what is it that the Lord's trying to tell you and me? On that slide, I considered it like this. These five virgins that were wise, they not only were those that again had oil for the time being, but they had the preparation, the foresight, the wisdom, and the nature of understanding the need to persevere and to be ready, even if the bridegroom delayed his coming. In other words... They had enough insight and perspective to make that wise choice. You and I know rather well the strength and the majesty connected to preparation, to be ready for events when they transpire. Sometimes in the physical world, how needful that is. To be ready for a storm, to be ready for some other eventuality. That's typically why we buy insurance, isn't it? To be ready for something that happens, though we hope it never does. We are ready in case it does. But surely in that light, we notice here that in the church, you and I might find ourselves on the foolish side. Maybe we began the Christian journey and for a while we endured with the Lord, persevering in matters of challenge. But the time could well come when due to other choices, we may not still be those that are ready. It's no wonder in that light that Jesus issued these powerful words of this parable of the ten virgins, five of which were foolish. Near the bottom of that slide before you, does it that remind all of us of other teaching found in the Word of God, not the least of which is this, Watch, therefore, Matthew 25, 13. There isn't no one of us that knows either the day of our demise in death or the day of the Lord's second coming. We just don't know. May I say that it was in the infinite wisdom of God He planned it that way. We all know what would happen if He had told the day of His second coming. People would live in any old way at all until a couple of hours or maybe a couple of days prior to the Lord's coming and then the church buildings around this world wouldn't be enough to baptize them all. That's the way we'd all live, at least in the majority. 
Jesus wanted the Christian life to be one of earnest steadfastness. That you do this because you do love Him and what He has done for us. And so every day we strive to do that which is, that which is His bidding. You'll notice the bridegroom didn't tell them when He was coming. And later on, you and I notice these interesting words to be seen in verse number 13. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Jesus now likened Himself to that phrase, the Son of Man. And you and I recall from the book of Ezekiel how often that phraseology is used. In this instance, as Jesus referred to it that way, He, of course, is the Son of Man. But He didn't reveal to us when He's coming. There have been many a person who has thought that he or she was able to figure it out because they're under the illusion it's somewhere in the Bible. Bookstore shelves groan under the load of books written by people who thought they had figured out when Jesus is coming. But isn't it laughable? One by one as the dates have come and gone and the Lord didn't come. He didn't. You and I could use from now till midnight to write down the particular months, days, and years that people have asserted. And one by one, they have all been wrong. And yet, they shall all still be wrong when there are those who dare to make that kind of proclamation. Because here, even Jesus said the Son of Man is such that that date has not been revealed. In some ways, Mark's version is even stronger in Mark 13, verse 32 where there he asserted, interestingly, that even the Son of Man didn't know. At the time the Lord was living in the flesh, the Son of Man did not know. Don't you find it amazing then that there are people who thought they figured out what Jesus never could? That somehow they can piece together matters from the book of Daniel or the book of Zechariah or maybe the book of Ezekiel and somehow figure out what the Lord could not. The sheer hypocrisy. You and I know if the Lord couldn't figure it out because it wasn't there, then surely no man can claim to do so. But isn't that a powerful reminder to one and all of us about the need for watchfulness, continuing care, ongoing vigilance? Because isn't it true that once faithful, you can fall from grace? Peter wrote that rather directly in 2 Peter 2, verses 18 on to verse 22. He painted it directly. It's impossible to misunderstand it. There were those at that time who were faithful. They had escaped the pollution of the world, Peter wrote, but they begin again to be entangled in it. And the latter end was worse than the beginning. In other words, they were lost before. In the latter end, they were lost, but now it's worse for them. The power of that teaching certainly must not go unnoticed because in it, Jesus is encouraging us to be wise. May I point out that we need to ever then be present at the services of the church like we are tonight because we receive instruction and reminder and teaching, not that we have never heard it before, but we need to be reminded so that we can always be watchful understanding that eternity is too great a matter to risk. What about the second observation, the second lesson that might well be noted? And it's this one. Let's give even more attention to this phrase of watchfulness. 
the death, of course, that shall come to each of us. For death is a certain appointment, Hebrews 9.27. And yet you and I aren't aware of that particular moment either. Could we not at least remind ourselves of this teaching of Proverbs 27, verse 2? Boast not thyself of the morrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. How many times have you known of individuals who perhaps as friends or acquaintances or neighbors for years, perhaps even decades, there comes a morning that that person gets up and just like countless days before, that day proceeds, but it ends in a way unlike any that had gone before it. Maybe that person suffers a heart attack that day. Maybe they're involved in a car accident. Maybe some other tragedy befalls them, and surely no one anticipates it, as if you woke up knowing it was going to occur. But it does. Watchfulness. Each of us, as we think about watchfulness, aren't you thankful the Lord encouraged us in this way? To recognize that we may not see the sunrise tomorrow. We may not live to see it. Or, if the case is, maybe we do live, but we've been befallen by some tragedy. Some illness has taken away from us the sentience that has been ours. We no longer can think clearly like we were before. So many things could befall us, and we are admonished to be watchful. You'll notice on that slide, I encourage you to think of these words near the bottom. What was it that Paul wrote to Titus in Titus 2, verses 11 and 12? The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. The challenge, the calling, the mission set before you and me every day is to live soberly, righteously, and godly. To live soberly is to live with sound reasoning and judgment. Never purposefully choosing to behave in such a way that it would be of unsound choices. To live righteously is obviously to live pursuing what's right by virtue of the standard of God. And finally... Godly. I know as you and I think about services such as this one, we're thankful for the opportunity of God's Word to challenge us in that way because our world does not encourage us to live soberly, righteously, and godly. What you and I witness and observe in the world around us is by and large an encouragement. It doesn't matter what you do. In the final analysis, who really cares? You live in a way that you think is right, and that's enough, at least in the mind of most people. But God says that is foolishness of the highest order. You and I might remember many Bible characters that tried to live that way and how it turned out for them. At least in this regard, would you and I not appreciate that we have an anchor of the soul? Steadfast and sure in the words of Hebrews 6, verses 19 and 20, and in that language, watchfulness is surely a matter of great wisdom. What about lesson number three? In that lesson, you also note this with me. Don't you find it intriguing how often the Lord made reference to marriage? I mentioned earlier the first of His miracles was performed there, as recorded in John chapter 2. 
But in addition to that, more than once, he would refer to features connected to marriage and use that for a powerful teaching tool. That same thing, of course, is to be noted in this parable that's set before us tonight. Marriage is a wonderfully divine arrangement. And in that arrangement, you and I find the very attribute of God's great approval when it's approached the way that satisfies the statements of the Word of God. Marriage is honorable in all. And the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Our world has today, and I suppose for a long, long time, has had a problem with fornication. Enjoying sexual favors to which one has no right. Marriage is the one and only arrangement wherein that's to be appreciated and enjoyed. Our world, as you and I well know, likes to tout very strongly free sex, however you wish to think of it, with whomever and whenever you might wish to enjoy it. God says no. They didn't write. It will not lead to blessing for you, nor for those who, in fact, are those that take part in this. You may notice on that slide before you, the honor of marriage takes us back to the beginning book in the Bible. The sweetness, the blessing that goes with a marriage approved by God. In Genesis chapter 2, the man was alone and God remedied that by, of course, creating Eve from the rib of Adam's side. And as God brought the woman to the man, these words are then found in Genesis 2, beginning in verse 23. In speaking first, Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Did you notice? Adam knew where she'd come from. He appreciated the fact that it was a rib from his side that had been utilized to bring her into being. But then God in speaking said, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And that pronouncement has never changed. What there was stated by the God of heaven was reiterated by Jesus Himself in Matthew chapter 19 and stated one final time in Ephesians chapter 5. That marriage that God ordained is the one that still is the prototype and the pattern for all of them. Men, of course, tried to change it, alter it, make various and sundry deviations from it in the Old Testament days, but God, you may remember, had this to say. It was that faithful state, statement in Matthew 19. You recall the scene. There were those that came before Jesus and said, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Jesus first said, Have you not read? That he which made them at the beginning made them male and female. Jesus thus asked them, Don't you know what it said? Have you not read it? But then in the verses that follow, they upon hearing the Lord's response, in which Jesus said this in verse 6, What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. They then asked this question, If that's the way it is, then why did Moses grant a bill of divorcement? Why did he allow the possibility of divorce? And Jesus then said this, Because of the hardness of your heart, it was suffered to be so. But from the, from the very beginning, that was not the way it was to be. 
from the very beginning. We today should still prize highly the reality of marriage as the Bible has defined it. And to ever set that before ourselves and those whom we can influence for the understanding that that is what marriage is to be. Men, of course, still try with earnestness to redefine it, to change the terms of it, to speak of different ones that can enjoy its favors, but none of that is biblically ordained. God has the blueprint. And unless God authorizes the change, there can be no redefinitions of it. There can be no extensions of it. Although our Supreme Court in the year 2015 declared that same-sex unions enjoy an equal right to what you and I would recognize as a biblical marriage, God never said it. That was nine people resting on the United States Supreme Court. Could I maybe word it like this? These who are on our Supreme Court may be the United States Supreme Court, but they are not the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court resides in heaven. And it is that declaration that has never changed. Jesus, at this point in time, in the course of this parable, at least brought to our recognition and reflection some truths about marriage. Could I not offer this thought even in regard to marriage? It's important to be watchful. For may we each rest assured that over the course of time, long enough hearing these sorts of things, there will arise more and more of generations that will soon see the biblical description as odd, strange, too narrow, unacceptable, and therefore not supported. It'll only take one more generation to do it. We've already seen the, tra the train running fairly quickly along the pathway so opposed to biblical narrative concerning marriage. Could we, all not, could we not also say this? Biblical marriage, as it's highlighted, is not only sweet in that which God says is a good thing, Proverbs 18, verse 22, but it's also what highlights in us an understanding of its blessing and benefit for so many other arenas of life. The church, isn't it true? For a man to be an elder, he has to be a married man. Thus, we need families who understand, who lift high and encourage the truth on topics such as this one. Not only that, the strength of our nation in many ways will rest so strongly upon families that themselves understand and follow the biblical pattern. One of the comments on that slide is this. All of this would insinuate that we must choose wisely and understand the prestige and the power connected to biblical marriage. The New Testament has so much more that could be said about it, but aren't we admonished to marry in the Lord? That wording of 1 Corinthians seven thirty nine is echoed in so many other passages, both Old and New Testament alike, in which we understand that for a family to, in fact, have that characteristic, it needs to have husband and wife members that also enjoy and appreciate the connection to the God of heaven. What God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. In marriage, there are those three parties. There's the man, there's the woman, and there's God. Each one joined to God by their mutual submission to Him, just as surely as they're joined to, to, to one another. As the wife submits to her husband, she's submitting to a man who has already submitted to God. 
That's the way it must be if that family is to be as it ought to be. Tonight, as we give thought to the parable of the ten virgins, we have been challenged by virtue of the following three things. First of all, on this conclusion page, the thought that as Christians we must watch, for we do not know the day of the Lord's second coming, nor do we know the day of our own death. Furthermore, we've been encouraged in watchfulness with regard to the grand features of all the other matters the Lord reminded us of. And finally, some of the great truths concerning marriage. What a blessing it is for 13 verses to challenge us in these ways, and even other truths might have been noted. But tonight, as we extend the Lord's invitation, it might well be that someone among us needs prayers of strength, prayers of encouragement, not necessarily due to openly known public sin, but we're just facing some challenges in life, and we would wish this congregation of people in love and in direct answer to the prayer of, of the nature of God's answer to prayer that you would wish us to pray for you. We would be happy, more than happy to do that. In fact, we're told in James 5.16 to pray one for another. But it could well be that someone in this number is a wayward child of God, that you have begun to act in ways that aren't consistent with what you know you should be, and we'd be delighted to, again, make note of your repentance and confession and to beseech God for forgiveness. If you, though, have never become a Christian, why not tonight? Why not this day, the fifth day of March, 2023, your spiritual birthday it could be? We'd be delighted to encourage you, to assist you, to help you. If that would be the need of your life, the Lord Himself demands that you believe in Him, absolutely. That you repent of your sins completely that you confess His name as the Son of God, and that you be baptized for the remission of your sins. Upon so doing, if you'll walk faithfully until death, heaven, eternity is yours. Brother Don has chosen this song of encouragement. If we could help you tonight in some way, we invite you to come at once while we stand and while we sing.